One example of Confucian ritual I've used in the classroom goes like this. I'll ask a student to come up and help me with something. I love these little moments. Uh, it's kind of like a magic act. I'll need someone from the audience to help me with my next trick kind of thing. And, and so it's fun and you get giggling and it's a moment in the classroom. Anyway, what I'll do is hand the student a pretend gift and I'll ask him or her to receive it two different ways. Once with just one hand, just taking the gift from me with one hand, and then we'll do it again, and I'll have the student accept the pretend gift using both hands. You can try this yourself, and you'll inevitably have the same results. When I ask the class which way of receiving the pretend gift is more respectful, more polite, everyone always agrees that using two hands seems nicer. It's obviously more polite, more respectful, and it's got a quality that Ruists would call zhen or benevolent. Your whole body changes when you give a gift with two hands or receive it. You, you have to face the person square to do this. Whereas with one hand, you can look like you barely notice the person. With two hands, it's as if you were afraid to drop a particularly treasured gift. And it's the same with giving the gift. Handing off a gift with one hand seems, as they say, offhanded, right? Uh, there's something more casual about it, and that's obvious. No one disagrees. And this, actually, is something that really interests me. Using this Confucian proscription for how to give or receive a gift, to give it or receive it, in a way that comes off as respectful and polite, this little social ritual using both hands, it's got this thing, ren or benevolence, kindness, courtesy, call it what you will, and there are a lot of translations of that term. Uh, but there's something pretty obvious there, really. And it, it works just as well among present-day college students in the United States as it did 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago during the Warring States period. And that's amazing. It's really amazing because there's something fundamental, something basic going on here that we can very easily overlook. And that's what I want to talk about today. To this day in China, by the way, if someone is giving you an important gift, they're going to give it to you probably with two hands. And there's probably a bit of a bow that will go with that. Hi, I'm Andy Abel, and this is the Confucian Podcast. Welcome to episode four, where we'll explore the relationship between benevolence and ritual, but with more of a focus on ritual. Now, this two-handed thing, uh, we seem, all of us, to understand it the same way. 
We feel it the same way. And that may seem trivial, but it's not. These kinds of universals are really telling. They tell us things about the human condition. We're talking here about a kind of politeness that everyone gets. This is, for all intents and purposes, a human universal, and the Confucian school ferreted out some of these things, what we might call micro-ritual expressions of benevolence. Now, you could be the sort of person who puts your muddy feet up on a chair, or you could be the sort of person who, who has habitualized these sorts of ways, these ways of acting toward others. So, okay, but let's start with an analect. In this episode, we'll go to the opening line from book four of the analect. The master said, as to a neighborhood, it is benevolence that is its beauty. If one does not choose to abide in benevolence, how is one to attain wisdom? Now, this passage, like much of chapter 4, deals with ren, or benevolence, that kindness, that goodness that is expressed through good manners, as with the example of giving gifts with two hands. And Leggy, the great 19th century translator, uh, translated the ren, the, what I'm calling benevolence, in this passage. He translated it as virtuous manners to suggest, I guess, that a neighborhood where people are polite is best. And that's okay, but we can do a little bit better. There's uh, some disagreement over whether to translate the jir as wisdom. Uh, Brooks, uh, Bruce Brooks, who I studied with, has it as to be known, uh, so as to say that if you do not, do not choose to live in benevolence, then how will you come to be well-known as a sage, perhaps? But uh, wisdom here makes better sense. So, jir uh, in the fourth tone, not in the modern sense of to know or jir. So again, as to a neighborhood, it is benevolence that is its beauty. If one does not choose to abide in benevolence, how is one to attain wisdom? Now, uh, on the other hand, Brooks's translation of the word abide for chu here is great because uh, abide in benevolence, that phrase, is part of what makes this intellect so clever. There's both a reference to a kind of village, a li, but the idea is that if you are living in benevolence in the abstract sense, that then is a source of wisdom, and that's how I read this passage. Uh, and I think that other translate other translators have missed that connection between chu and li, that the connection of living in benevolence. So ritual, if it is working, manifests and evokes ren, and this is how the two concepts are related. And if the benevolence is there, if it's in the village, it's beautiful. 
But we haven't really gotten into what ritual is, and so I'll start with that rather than Zhen for this episode. When we talk about ritual, English speakers sometimes assume I'm talking about religion, which is not the case. We can use other terms for li, like protocols, but I've stuck with ritual, that translation, because there are some breakthrough writings on ritual by social scientists that come remarkably close to Confucian perspectives. And it's kind of my thing to bring these two lines of thought together. So, ritual. I'm going to stick with that word. But not just of the religious sort. So, graduation ceremonies, sporting events, micro-rituals like giving gifts with two hands, shaking hands... And the things that are included here might at first seem a little unexpected, like the ritual used by people passing a bong, or the scripted behavior you might encounter at a rock concert. Now, when we talk about ritual in this way, we have a problem. And in in a way, it's kind of my story. So at the risk of making this about myself, Uh, Let me just say that I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst for grad school to study sociology, but one of the big draws for me was the chance to take courses with Bruce Brooks, who was doing very interesting work on warring state texts. And I learned a lot from Bruce. He did enormous scholarship. Rather than just taking on one text, he took on all the warring states texts together, looking for arguments between them and all kind of philological details to date individual passages and thereby study how these texts had evolved and trace out the thought that way. Now, before grad school, I had sat in on classes with him and had been very impressed. So in addition to my grad classes in sociology, I also took courses with Bruce. I was crazy busy, but I learned a lot. But unfortunately, Bruce... Uh, and this is like uh, others who study warring, ta- warring states' texts, would sometimes base conclusions on weak evidence. And uh, it's very easy to get into that because actually there aren't a lot of texts, there's not a lot of evidence, and so people are sometimes forced, if they're trying to go beyond the received wisdom, They're kind of forced to build strings of inferences. And this can lead to findings that read like a conspiracy analyst. So if this is true, then this must be true. And if that's true, that leads us to this conclusion and so on and so on until you arrive at something that is peculiar. And I think it was this kind of process that led Bruce, uh, and it's led others, to claim that Confucius was mostly interested in benevolence and only slightly interested in ritual, Li, and that the importance of ritual came later, uh, uh, maybe through Xunzi or something like that. So here's a problem. Are benevolence and ritual related uh, in Confucian, early Confucian thought and in the earlier sections of the Analects, or is this something that came in later? And that's not just a petty detail. It's not, uh, it's not an obscure um, you know, 
scholarly kind of question. It's actually a big deal because that really tells us what was at the core of uh, Confucian thought. Now, we do know that the intellects was, it's very obvious, that it was put together by different people at different times. So, okay. But here's my take. When a school of thought emerges, a school in the vague sense like Confucianism or Taoism or communism or postmodernism or whatever, there has to be some idea, some notion, some orientation, some practice or something to give it traction. There has to be a something there that, that, that exists both to attract adherence and to set off later thinking. There has to be a seminal thing in there somewhere. And it looks like what happened is that Confucius became famous. He was a kind of reference for many writers in the Warring States. You have many different texts mentioning Confucius, uh, pro and con. And there were different Confucianisms uh, after he died. Uh, Confucius was remembered. And there were apparently many different Confucian schools. So, so there's some complication. And we can get hung up on those kinds of differences and details. We can get hung up, too, on the philological details of the text. This or that detail in this or that text. Uh, we need to have a sense, though, of what it is that the school of thought gave us in a most general sense. Now, maybe Confucius really was a disgruntled military guy dedicated to an old-fashioned military ethic, a kind of good old boy's code. And maybe that was fundamental to uh, what became Confucianism. That, that's Bruce's conclusion. I remember in a class once when he concluded uh, kind of triumphantly that Confucius was a frustrated militarist. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I don't want to make, I, I don't want to be too defensive of Confucius. I think we do need to be very objective. But I disagreed because if we conclude that the big insights into ritual came later, then we have no means to explain the intensity with which the followers of Confucius defended these ideas. People put their lives at risk in support of, of these ideas of Confucianism. Others preferred the Confucian way to wealth and success. So how are we to explain that kind of commitment? No. We have to begin by determining what was of value. We have to begin by understanding what the followers of Confucius would be so moved by as to give their lives over to this set of teachings. In other words, we need to use theory and philology together. But at the moment, there is a lot of philology and hardly any theory. I'm reminded of Darwin's response when asked why we need to do theory at all. He was actually asked, well, why not just collect data? And his answer is famous. Without theory, he said, what is to preclude us from counting the pebbles in a ditch? And by the same token, to understand the findings of the philologists, 
it is worthwhile to consider social science theory if it gives us insights into the social processes that would have been interesting to Confucian writers. You know, we're all human. There are certain basics about the human condition. All human societies have funerals and play sports and so on, and the Confucian line on ritual and benevolence is a breakthrough. And so that's my line. That's how I see it. Uh, but whatever the case with the original Confucius, the actual Confucius, the matter was certainly settled by the time of Shunzi and uh, and Tai Yong, who had the uh, the text of the Analects engraved in stone by uh, 183 A.D. as a means to prevent textual alterations, um, you know that by that time. You know, so anyway, any, enough about this issue. But the basic idea is, for me, the kind of central idea that comes through uh, as kind of standard Confucianism that a lot of scholars lately have been trying to get past uh, when they come up with alternative theories. It's very interesting, and they have interesting findings along the way. But then we lose the basic gist of Confucianism. We, we seem to be stepping beyond what's most interesting about it in the first place and uh, things that are, have been found interesting by Western social scientists too. So, but enough about that. Now, ritual, ritual concerns affect, emotions. Rituals train our emotions in particular ways. Randall Collins, a sociologist, uses the phrase mutual entrainment to describe how people in groups can be caught up in ritual together. And what entrains us, what brings us, what links us as people, is the shared emotion. Emotion counts. Uh, there's a tendency for intellectuals to, to focus too much on the ideas, but the emotions count. I mean, here's an example. Imagine you've just been recently elected president of the United States and you want to make changes, you want to make things better. If you want the people of the United States to get behind you in your efforts, they have to be kind of patriotic. They have to love their country, to work for its betterment. They have to be motivated to defend it, even to sacrifice their lives for it if necessary. And if we're after that kind of commitment so that we can actually do things and make things better... If we want that kind of commitment, it doesn't help much to explain in any scholarly terms why the U.S. might be worth defending. An intellectual argument, a mental argument, uh, on things like freedom and the American way, something like that, can get complicated really fast. I mean, what about Switzerland? They're, they're doing pretty well. Uh, they're educated. They have a good standard of living. Aren't they pretty much free, too? Is there a big difference? I don't know. Pretty much, right? What other countries are doing well? Aren't there countries out there with a better standard of living and less inequality, you say? Maybe we should just ditch the United States altogether and just do things the way these other countries are doing it. How do we think about these things? Let's be analytical. You know, Obviously, you can't get anywhere with the ideas themselves. People have to feel it. You have to feel your love for country. And the only way that is going to happen is social. Love of country depends on things like 
flag-raising ceremonies, teary-eyed memorials to our brave fallen heroes, stirring orations, peons to the founding fathers and their struggles to, to bring forth on this continent, you know, on the, it, or if people are becoming too nationalistic, on the other hand, it's, it's not enough to just stop talking about these things and put away the flags. No, then you, if you, if you want to calm people down and prevent war, maybe, you, then you need rousing reminders of our shared humanity, crowds of people swaying together in great public squares, singing some new anthem of love passing between international borders, something like that. People have to feel it. And ritual, which has been for Western social theorists mostly something of an afterthought in their theories, is front and center for Ruist or Confucian scholars. And they're right. It's basic to social functioning. You can't do without it. We can get carried away, and maybe this is the place to tuck in a little critique. It's a little embarrassing that it was not Confucian China that gave us things like Rob's rules of order or queuing behavior. Chinese people are still learning how to line up. So Confucian China was not the perfect solution, but it's a very interesting solution. Now, already in the Warring States, it was clear that over-reliance on Confucianism could get pretty silly. Han Feidze nailed the Ruists for going overboard, and his critique still stands. Here's Han Feidze in a spotty translation by Wing Tzu Chan, who uh, I'll need to correct this a little bit, uh, but I am partial to Chan's source book in Chinese philosophy, uh, since it was my introduction to Chinese philosophy back in high school. I read it in 1980, if you're interested. Uh, it was published the year I was born, too, 1963, so it's out of date, but it's kind of nostalgic for me. Anyway, here's Han Feidze blasting the Ruists. He writes, Awe-inspiring power can prohibit violence, whereas virtue and kindness are insufficient to end disorder. When the sage rules the state, he does not depend on people to do good for him, but prevents them from doing wrong. And I'm paraphrasing there. If he depends on people to do good for him, we can't even count on 10 of them within the state. But by preventing bad behavior, the whole country may be regulated. Now, of course he's right. Laws, rewards punishments must be employed in the regulation of a group. You know, I always have in mind the ridiculous image, and this is a caricature of Ruists, an image where the city is under attack and the Ruists are desperately performing public rituals as if it might somehow protect the state. Well, no, it, forget the rituals. At some point, it's time to just stop that and pick up your halberd and go fight. But uh, on the other hand, you have cases like the United States where you already have a pretty good system of laws and where rewards and punishments are firmly ensconced as a means to manipulating behavior. But where there is, arguably in our case, a drift away from social harmony and toward division and inefficiency, and you can have the law and order, you can have all of that. 
and still have things fall apart. In other words, yes, law and order, all that stuff, but wait a minute, there's something more. You have to get the rituals right. Here's one of the most important things you need to know, anyone needs to know, about human life. The ritual order is, indeed, as Shinzo puts it, the warp and woof, the highways and byways of the social order. Here's the point. Ritual is prior to law. It's so important. Let me say it again. It's such a big one. Ritual is prior to law. A.C. Graham got this, and he put it brilliantly in his, his, his wonderful book, uh, Disputers of the Tao. And he was influenced by his teacher, uh, Finn Garrett, who's another interesting writer on, on Confucianism. Um, but A.C. Graham says, you know, he, he points out uh, a really important thing. Uh, Warring states philosophers, he tells us, had reasoned their way to an understanding of the irrational foundations of the rational order. He writes, Thus, the element of the magical and the sacred in the intellects, which has seemed to be the detritus of primitive assumptions in a mind freeing itself from the supernatural, on the contrary, reflects a profound insight into the workings of social convention, the ritual act influencing through interrelations which the agents do not analyze has, does have an efficacy different in kind from the act calculated as means to an end. Graham sees the power of the gentle person, or the junzi, or what he calls the man of potency, potency capitalized, uh, as having social effects. He writes, the man of potency who who has not an abstract knowledge of conventions, but an effortless skill and grace in operating with them, although doing nothing, uh, does enhance the order around him. In the this-worldly orientation of Confucius, there is a recognition that the sacred, understood as a power for good independent of the wills of individuals, does not issue from an external realm of spirits, but is inherent in the spontaneity of ritualized relations between persons. We want everything to make perfect sense. We want our societies to be like a tinker toy or a Swiss watch. But that's not quite the way of things. Ritual and benevolence, these things are not purely rational. They're bound up in affect, stories, morals, culture, but they are at the heart of things. But we are uh, out of time. We've covered some basics about the relationship between benevolence and ritual, and I've argued that it's, that relationship is a seminal part of Confucian thought and begun to show some relationships between Confucian thought and Western social thought, uh, such as the Confucian schools having so early on discovered the irrational basis of the rational order. A.C. Graham's thing. Uh, great stuff. And I, I hope you like this episode's intellect. Uh, the master said, as to a neighborhood, it is benevolence that 
is its beauty. If one does not choose to abide in benevolence, how is one to attain wisdom? And it is worth considering, isn't it, uh, what actually makes a neighborhood, a village, or a place that you live beautiful. And when you find that, that abstract quality about the people there, to abide in that, to remain in that, uh, that is the beauty of that neighborhood, and to live in it yourself in the abstract sense seems to be a worthwhile thing to do. Um, in, uh, in the next episode, I'll talk about some imaginary dogs and quails on an island. Please consider liking this episode, following the series, or recommending to friends, and please feel free to email me at confucianpodcast at gmail.com. That's Confucian Podcast, no period or separations. Confucian Podcast at gmail.com. Till next time, express kindness, develop your mind, avoid all depravity, and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening.